This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. You ready to go? Yeah. All right. Get your Bibles open. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a quick blurb on something. I was recently, well, in the past few months, encouraged to entertain the possibility that people might want to listen rather than read. So instead of blogging, I'm podcasting now. Brian Daysbury Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. There's more to be said than can be said in 52 Sundays. So... The overflow goes there. <laughs> you can find it anywhere podcasts can be found. If you're not sure how all that works, just go to the homepage, myabc.church. Scroll down a little bit, and you'll find a link there that'll send you to the appropriate place. Our vision here is captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. So at the core of what we are about as a church is the gospel. The gospel does all the heavy lifting. It does all the work. It is itself captivating all on its own. Our job, your job as a Christian, our job as a church is is to hoist, hoist up the tallest flagpole we can find, this gospel, and then call people to gather around it. The scriptures are pretty clear as to what happens when we do that. People from every generation will crowd around it. And if you doubt me about that, consider the fact the church has existed for 2,000 years. It always captivates people. It always does. We are a multi-generational church because the gospel is a multi-generational message. And we know the gospel points us to and is the source of the good life. We know that as we look around our culture, our world, the greener grass conspiracy is alive and well. It lures you in and it says, if only conditions were like this, then I would be happy. If only life was like this, then I could be content. That is the game Satan's been playing from the beginning. Tries to get you to see, well, over there you could be happy. Over there you could be content. And if we're substituting anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ into that blank, we're setting ourselves up for failure. It lures people in. The greener grass conspiracy lures people in. Only for them to discover that money and acceptance and prestige and power and notoriety and hundreds of other created things can't deliver on their promises. Only the gospel possesses the attributes needed to bring rest to weary souls. Now, our five values here are practices we all need, all of us need to embody repetitiously in order to see our vision come to fruition. We're going to be preaching on these five values over the course of the next five Sundays. If we as a church practice these values, we will get traction in seeing our vision accomplished and seeing generations captivated with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. So we'll start today with value number one, the Bible. God's word is an extension of God himself. 
The Bible is no ordinary book. There are places where Jesus himself takes what, say, Moses says in Genesis and declares it to be the speech of God. That establishes a trajectory that every word contained in the Bible is a word from God. There are places where the New Testament writers use interchangeably Scripture with God as though there's overlap. In other words, to read the Bible is to meet with God himself. There are places where the word of God is the object of man's praise. It is clearly no ordinary book. It's divine. It's superlative. It's to be treated with the utmost reverence and love. So it it ought not surprise us the longest chapter in the Bible is a love poem written about God's word. The longest chapter in the Bible is a love poem written about God's word. Out of the 1,189 chapters that make up the Bible, Psalm 119 is the longest, and it's a love poem written about God's word. Now, this particular psalm is an acrostic. There are eight verses within each stanza. And within each stanza, the eight verses begin with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, for example, verses 1 through 8 all begin with the letter Aleph. Verses 9 through 16 begin with Beit. Verses 17 to 24 begin with Gimel. And on and on, 22 stanzas, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 24 letters in the Greek alphabet, 26 letters in the English and Klingon alphabets. Okay? 22 stanzas, okay? There are 176 verses in this psalm. And out of 176 verses, 100, within 169 of them, the psalmist makes some reference to the Word of God. Law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, promises, word. I find it absolutely fascinating. This lengthy love poem is not about marriage. It's not about children. It's not about food or drink or creation. It's about the Bible. When was the last time you wrote a love poem? Probably in the time B.C., before children, <laughs> when you were lovesick with each other. Hopefully, it's the person sitting next to you, I mean, married to, not just happening to be sitting next to you. <laughs> Did you ever write a love poem to each other? Some of these can be incredibly elegant. Shakespeare's sonnets are like that. But our love poems, they can lack some lyrical and aesthetic beauty. I found a few online, so you know it's going to be good. <laughs> This gentleman took to posting some of the love poems he wrote when he was a sophomore in high school. You ready? Look, there's a lonely cow. Hey, cow. If I were a cow, that would be me. If love is the ocean, I'm the Titanic. Baby, I burn my hand on the frying pan of our love. But still, it feels better than the bubble gum that holds us together, which you stepped on. Gets better. 
Girl, you make me feel like gum on the bottom of a desk. When you touch my nose, I'll never forget the way you eat your Frosties. I need your love to keep me warm like the fires burning inside of us, pushing over the edge of insanity and keeping us so close together in heart and yet so far apart in miles. There's one more. This is called Purse of Love. Girl, you make me brush my teeth. (laughs) Girl, you make me comb my hair, use deodorant, call you, you're so swell. Love poems, love poems, whether beautifully written or not, certainly are evidence of unbounded enthusiasm toward an object of great affection. Such is the case with Psalm 119. We're going to look at three things as we observe some verses from this psalm. What we believe about God's word, how we feel about God's word, and what we do with God's word. What we believe about it, how we feel about it, and what we do with it. First, what we believe about God's word. First, we believe it says what is true. It says what is true. Verse 38, the statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. Verse 86, all your commands are trustworthy. Verse 160, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Over and over again, the psalmist poetically proclaims the truthfulness of God's word, the trustworthiness of God's word. It's hard to know who or what to trust sometimes, isn't it? Can you trust every single thing your teacher or professor tells you? Can you trust every single thing the experts tell you? How about politicians? Well, that's why you have fact checkers. But can you trust everything the fact checkers say? Who, who fact checks the fact checkers? And I hope you know you can't trust everything you read on the internet. I hope you know that. What can we trust? At times, you can't even trust what you see with your own eyes. Statistics can be manipulated and, and, and photographs can be tinkered with. The word of God is the only thing we can trust always and entirely. Verse 96 says there is no limit to its perfection. There's no limit to its perfection. It does not decay. It does not corrupt. It endures forever. It won't wear out. It won't grow irrelevant. It will not grow irrelevant. Like fads that are here today and gone tomorrow. We want to know what's true about ourselves, what's true about people, what's true about the world, what's true about the future, true about the past. We want to know what's true about the good life, what's true about God. If that's your heart's cry, I want to know what's true. You have to come to this book. You've got to come to this book. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is Truth. God's word says what is true. Second, it pronounces what is right. Verse 7. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. Verse 62. I like this one. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. You ever done that? 
Verse 137, you are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. You know, sometimes we think the word righteous is uh, tantamount to being holy, and there is some overlap there, but, but righteous, strictly speaking, is to be in a state of objective rightness. Pure, unadulterated, objective rightness. The Bible possesses a constant state of pure, unadulterated, objective rightness. You know, sometimes you hear Christians admit that they don't like what the Bible says about X, Y, and Z. Could be gender roles, could be hell, could be sexuality, or a whole host of other issues. I hear them say they don't like what the Bible says about it, but because it's in the Bible, they, they, they believe it. And there's something positive to that. There's something positive to that sentiment that says, I, I wish it didn't say this, but it's in God's words. So I'll believe it, even though I don't like it. But there's also a dark side to that. Because if God's word is in a state of pure, unadulterated, objective rightness, what is this posture of not liking something it says, saying about that person? It might appear admirable not to like something scripture says, but believe it anyway. Underneath all that, it's really an indictment of our unrightness. We should love what God loves and delight in whatever he says. God never requires what is impure or unloving or unwise. His plans and demands are always right. They're always right. God only ever asks of us what is proper, fitting, and good. Third, it supplies what is good. Verse 66, teach me knowledge and good judgment for I trust your commands. Good judgment comes from God's commands. Verse 68, you are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. So the word of God forms what is good in us so that we perform the good. It forms in us what is good so that we perform the good. We all face numerous kinds of problems. And many of these problems contain layers. Sometimes we get sick and we need medicine. The Bible is not an antibiotic. But do you believe the Bible can be your counselor? You believe the Bible can help you with your deepest problems? That it can give you the help you need? The psalm tells us that, this, that the, the word of God supplies strength. In verse 28, it supplies hope in verse 43. It supplies wisdom in verse 98. You know, too often we go looking for strength and hope and wisdom in all the wrong places. Now, the word of God doesn't tell us everything we might want to know. It doesn't tell us everything we might want to know. But it does say, it does tell us everything God thinks we need to know. This is what you need to know. That's what's most important. It doesn't say everything about everything. It doesn't say everything about everything. But it does say everything God thinks we need to know. Second, how we feel about God's word. It's what we believe about God's word. We believe it's true, it's right, it supplies what is good. But how do we 
feel about God's word. The psalmist uses emotive language to describe how he feels about the Bible. First, we delight in it. Verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Imagine following into $100,000 this afternoon. What sort of joy would that bring you? Is there that sort of joy in God's word? It's difficult to quantify great riches, but it's safe to say this isn't pocket change. And if we're being honest, it's kind of hard to imagine how the psalmist's desires have been so calibrated that following the word of God brings as much joy or more than receiving a $100,000 check. Have yours been calibrated that way? Verse 72, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. What do you want? You want Bible or do you want money? Pick one. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Without a question, honey was the sweetest food in the ancient world. And frankly, I'd stack that up against anything we've got today. The psalmist likens the sweetness of God's word to the sweetness of honey. Mm. I count ten times the psalmist delights in the word of God in this psalm alone. How does your measure of delight in the word of God seem to stack up against the psalmist? And you might be thinking, well, I, uh, I'm not... Um, I'm not a thinking type of person. You know, I, I'm not a bookworm. I, I'm not one who can sit down with the Bible and read for an hour, noticing connections and finding all sorts of neat things in there. I'm not one of those. Maybe you're not honestly able to say, yes, I find great delight in the Bible. I would venture a guess, however, that there does exist in reality or hypothetical, literature you would find extremely interesting. I understand if I handed you a copy of Shakespeare's poems and I said to you, here, read this, you might respond saying, not today, not tomorrow, not next week, not in a million years. But what if I handed you an inheritance letter from a wealthy relative you didn't even know you had? It's 10 pages long because it took that long for this relative to spell out what you're inheriting. Do you like to read now? I think you do. What's the difference? You say, well, that's about me. Shakespeare's poems aren't about me. When what you're reading is about you, you suddenly become interested in it. Also, this particular inheritance letter does spell out some good news. There is something coming your way that's delightful. Well, let's say it's not an inheritance letter, but it's a letter from the IRS. Okay? What if I told you it's a personal letter from the IRS containing some bad news? How interested are you in reading it? Uh, just like the inheritance letter, you're going to be interested in reading it now different reasons now. Very different reasons. In this letter, the IRS informs you by the end of the day, every bank account you have will be confiscated and directly deposited in the United States Treasury. Will you be reading that letter with interest? Yes, in a seething rage sort of way. 
You'll find reading to be interesting if what you're reading has to do with you. If it's personal, if it's relevant to your life. You'll find reading interesting if what you're reading contains information regarding blessings coming your way or bad news you'd like to know about ahead of time. The Bible is all of that. The infinite sovereign God saw to it to write a book that so transcends time and space it's able to penetrate down to the details of your life and say things about them. This is why the psalmist can say something like in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your law. When was the last time you said that? Oh, how I love your law. Second, we desire God's word. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your law at laws at all times. My soul is consumed with longing. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. <laughs> These verses are so graphic. My soul is consumed with longing. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your word. You know, our lives are animated by desires. Desires are what get us up in the morning. Desire is what we dream about, what we pray about, what we think about when we're free to think about anything we want. Many of us have strong desires related to marriage, to children, to jobs, to houses, vacations, recognition. Some desires are good, some are bad. In this cacophony of desire, how strong is your desire to know the word of God? To understand it. To live by it. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Think about that imagery. This is a picture of someone dying of thirst. That's how intense their longing for the word of God is. It's hard for us to relate to this because we, we don't live in a thirsty, physically thirsty culture. You've got water spigots on every corner. When's the last time you were really thirsty? Remember what that was like? Frankly, for me, I've got to go all the way back to high school when I was playing basketball. You know, conditioning is kind of an important thing when you're playing hoops. And the coach that I played for um, was a stickler for conditioning. Um, We'd run these things called 16s. You're running the width of the court 16 times, and you got to do it in a minute or less. And of course, everybody, the whole team, has to be able to pull this off. Even the big guys, 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", 250 pounds. I mean, this is just simple physics. This is not going to work. And what happens if, if the whole team doesn't do it? You run it again. Now, at that point... You're just cashing it in. If you didn't get it the first time, you're certainly not getting it the second time. So it wasn't uncommon to see some guy in the corner of the gym heaving his guts out because they run us so hard. So for me, that became a strategy issue when consuming fluids during practice. I didn't because I didn't want to be that guy. But when practice was over, there was a mad dash, a mad dash to this thing. Let me show you this picture. Mad dash. Now, what do you call that here in Wisconsin? Say it again. All those of you from, not from Wisconsin, you know what that's called? That's a bubbler. Yeah. 
You look as confused as I was when I moved here. Bubbler. There's only one other place in the country where they call it that. You know where it is? I had to look it up. Harvard has this whole document on dialects within the United States. Rhode Island. What do you have to do with Rhode Island? There was a mad dash to the drinking fountain. We open our mouths and we drink and we drink and we drink and we drink and we drink. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your word. Last, we depend on it. The psalmist feels a dependence on the word of God. Verse 31, I hold fast to your statutes. He's desperate for the encouragement of the word. Verse 52, I remember, Lord, your ancient laws and I find comfort in them. We don't know where to turn. We don't know what to believe. You're saying, I don't know where my, I don't know where my life is going. <laughs> but I know this is true and I can depend on it. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I need it for my next step. I need it for my next step. This is why in Amos, he talks about all the disasters that are coming upon God's people. Famine and hunger and not enough water and pestilence and disease. But, but worst of all is a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. You may have experienced numerous calamities in your life on earth. But there is no calamity like that of the silence of God. So basic to our survival is God's word that he likens it to being as necessary as bread, a staple food in the ancient world. So God expects not just cognitive affirmation about the word, but he expects a visceral response to it. My delight, my desire, my dependence is entirely on this word. There is an emotive response to the word of God. So what does the psalmist believe about the word of God? What does the psalmist feel about the word of God? And finally, what does the psalmist do with God's word as a result of what he believes and feels about the word? See, the question really is, what bursts forth when all this pressure of belief and feeling explodes onto the surface? Like a geyser, Yellowstone, Old Faithful. There's this pressure, this, this cauldron underneath the surface that explodes this is, what happened. this is what's happening with the psalmist and what should happen in us. We have this belief. Here's what I know about God's word. We have this feeling. Here are what my affections are for the word. And they, they come together in this spiritual reaction and it explodes. So what do you do? What does it look like when this chemical reaction of belief and feeling come together? First, we sing the word. Verse 172, may my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. We speak the word. Verse 13, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. Verse 46, I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame. We study the word. Verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Verse 48, I reach out for your commands, which I love that I may meditate on your decrees. We store up the word. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We obey the word. 
Verse 57, you are my portion, Lord. I have promised to obey your words. Verse 129, your statutes are wonderful. Therefore, I obey them. We praise God for the word. Verse 62, at midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. Verse 164, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous laws. And we pray God would act according to his word. Verse 36, turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. So he's praying in this, Lord, help me to want the right things. Help me to want what you want for me. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. With poetry, you often have parallelism where two ideas presented are not random and unrelated, but they complement one another. So the cry for help in prayer is rooted in God's word. Praying the word is the way we put our hope in the Lord and cry for help. So what do we do with the word of God? When this, this pressure of belief and feeling comes together, comes to a climax, what do we do? We sing it. We speak it. We study it. We store it up. We obey it. We praise it. We pray it. When belief about God's word combines with feelings towards God's word, this is what you get. This is what you get. As I began working on this message, my... My mind kept going back towards a story I had watched several years ago about a people group in Indonesia who had been reached with the gospel but who did not have a Bible in their own language. And this video documents that moment when they received for the first time the New Testament in their own language. As I watched them react, I thought that's what Psalm 119 looks like. Is it that precious to you? This is the most soul-satisfying, life-transforming, need-meeting, relevant thing you can read each day. And of course, its purpose is to reveal to you the most soul-satisfying, life-transforming, need-meeting, relevant person you can know. Jesus Christ. The word in the flesh. The epicenter of the gospel and the Bible itself. Let's pray. And Lord, some of us need to be convicted that we have not relished your word the way the psalmist does. It's gone on a shelf and it's collected dust. And our lives bear the evidence of that. So Lord, I pray that you would grab hold of our attention. Get our faces back in your book where we can behold wondrous things. Some of us, Lord, just needed this reminder that your word is true. It's right. 
It provides what is good, and because of that is to be the object of our highest affections. We thank you for that reminder. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word to draw us to the word in the flesh. Jesus Christ. It's for his glory we say these things, we teach these things, we pray pray these things, and we sing these things. Amen.